This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Rock Jumper Worldwide Birding Adventures, specializing in top quality bird watching tours with experienced professional guides to over a hundred destinations around the world. The American Birding Association is proud to join Rock Jumper to offer an ABA tour to Tanzania in 2018. Join us for hundreds of birds, iconic mammals, and amazing culture and scenery. For more information, see rockjumper.com or events.aba.org. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and uh, before I get to the the meat of the episode, and we, we have a we have a good one this time around that has sort of turned into an unofficial, underappreciated bird episode, you know, quite accidentally, by the way, just sort of the way that the, that the content sort of shuffled itself together. I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that later, uh, but first, a couple noteworthy bits of news, not necessarily related. Uh, first, two episodes ago, I talked quite a bit about the Santa Ana situation, and by, by that I mean the proposed border wall at the Santa Ana National Wildlife Refuge in South Texas that threatens to you know, bisect the refuge, and there are you know real questions about access to the refuge for birders. I won't go into detail again. You can check out episode 0115 if you haven't already. Uh, but there was a, a protest march on the refuge held on August 13th, so a couple weeks ago as of the publication of this podcast, and ABA President Jeff Gordon was there on the ground representing the birding community of the U.S. and Canada, both of which use this refuge, making sure that our concerns about access and environmental degradation uh, were heard. He was joined by hundreds of other people, a diverse coalition of interested parties. It was it was quite a thing. And he did a series of Facebook Live videos from the march itself, and I have collected those in a blog post, the link to which I will include in the show notes. So check that out if that is a thing that interests you. It is actually very inspiring to see so many different people there for that one event. It's certainly something that means so much to birders. Uh, Anyway, I also put out a call on Twitter. I am NC underscore N8. That's NC Nate. That's my personal Twitter account for, you know, I put out a call for interesting stories, topics, you know, whatever you would like to hear about on this podcast, specifically this episode because I was running a little light on introductory material this week. There were no articles about millennial birders or even any, you know, good birders flock headlines I could poke fun at. Incidentally, Twitter is a, a good place to hit me if you have anything that you'd like to hear on this podcast, any ideas. I'm I'm all ears there. I did get a message from Heidi Trudel. She is an administrator of some fun bird groups on Facebook, uh, one of which focuses on on dead birds. It's it's a lot better than it sounds like from my description. Uh, Anyway, she asked me to include a reminder to keep an eye on your windows from now through November. Uh, Fix them if you can. Make them less reflective. Move plants away from them. Fall migration is on, and window mortality is is a big problem this time of year for birds, so please be aware. So consider that message passed on. On to this week's episode. Greg Neese and Ted Floyd are back. They're going to talk about house sparrows and molt. Wait, don't go for that skip button. This is this is really fascinating stuff. You will want to hear it, and you will come away with an appreciation for the feathers, at least, 
of the much maligned House Sparrow. But first, my guest is Ariel Fernier. She is a researcher from the University of Mississippi, and she has done a lot of really interesting work on rails and rail migration. Turns out there are so, so many more of them than that eBird checklist with the one herd-only record would suggest. Uh, she's with me to talk about rails after this week's Redbirds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of August 2017. We've got a ton of firsts to report for the period, a couple of which are excellent birds for the ABA area. Leading off, a white-winged tern was present for a few days in northern Pennsylvania, Tioga County. The species shows up from time to time in the northeastern part of the ABA area. The most recent prior record was a bird seen on Cape Cod, Massachusetts last year. And recent records, by that I mean, you know, the last five years or so are pretty clustered, suggesting that this could be a single bird that has been caught up in a flock of migrating black terns for several years. A white-winged tern has a, is a fairly uncommon vagrant in Western Europe, uh, so the presumed origin of this bird, as, as suggested by Steve Howell in Rare Birds in North America and by Ken Kaufman uh, with regard to this individual, is South America by way of Central Africa. White-winged terns winter in, in the tens of millions in equatorial Africa, so a, a bird or several birds shooting across into Brazil uh, and getting caught up in a flock of wintering black terns and heading north with them. That seems like a fairly likely occurrence, uh, and this is a well-worn path. Up in New Hampshire, a young common shell duck is a potential first record. The species is not yet officially on the ABA checklist. But we do expect that decision this year. Uh, records of shell duck have been increasing in the last decade, more or less alongside that species' colonization of Iceland. So we're getting some, some good evidence of a pattern of natural vagrancy with this one. Uh, we talked about that in a very early episode of this podcast with regard to some shell ducks in New Brunswick last winter. Uh, the fact that this is a juvenile bird is a new wrinkle, uh, but that seems par for the course for the late summer. Shell ducks undergo a molt migration where they disperse from their breeding grounds to go somewhere else to undergo flight feather molt. No one really knows where they go, somewhere in the North Sea for most of them, but it's, it's quite plausible that a young bird would disperse west and end up in North America this time of year, and they're moving around as early as July. Another first of note, a gray-tailed tattler was photographed off Metanicus Rock in Maine this week. This is an absolutely bonkers record, not least of which because this is only the second record for the Atlantic coast of this Asian shorebird, uh, but mostly because the observer, Earl Johnson, and I feel like he deserves to be named here, uh, heard the bird calling as it flew by realized that it was something different and quickly got his camera up to nail identifiable photos uh, in some serious Wild West gunslinging Annie Oakley type shooting uh, and got identifiable photos of this bird of this first for Maine. Pretty crazy. Other firsts on this period to note an Arctic tern in Box Elder County, Utah is a first, a lark bunting in Hendersonville, Kentucky, and a white ibis in Clark County, Nevada, uh, showing that waders are wandering all over the continent this fall, so keep an eye out. This is a little bit of the rarity landscape for August for the larger picture. Please check out the ABA blog every Friday morning for the latest news on rarities around the ABA area. Join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare.
There are a few birds that are as satisfying to get a good look at as rails. They are secretive, they are enigmatic, and they often require and reward hard work. My guest Ariel Fernier probably knows that better than just about anyone. She's a postdoctoral researcher at Mississippi State University where she works with the Gulf of Mexico Avian Monitoring Network. Her doctoral work focused primarily on rail migration and how they use the landscape. We're going to talk a little bit about that today. Uh, Ariel, I know you're busy these days. Thanks so much for making some time to join me. I'm really happy to be here, of course. Always happy to talk rails. Cool. Uh, so what is it about this this group of birds that you you found, you still find, so fascinating? Um, so I, I really got hooked on rails quite young. I, I volunteered with a rail project um, in Ohio where I grew up with blocks on Bird Observatory. And I just, I found them really fascinating. And the fact that we didn't know a lot about them also intrigued me. You know, there are just a lot of questions about just like their basic natural history and just, you know, things that we just didn't know. So it, it kind of felt like an opportunity to get to be like one of like the old school ornithologists who gets to like see things for the first time or, or figure out kind of these really, you know, kind of basic questions that to some degree we take for granted in a lot of other bird species. Absolutely. It's really, you know, hard work for for birders to find rails, they sort of sort of melt into that habitat really effectively. How did you solve that problem with your work of actually finding the birds that you were studying? Yeah, so it's really tough. Um, and so Courtney Conway and, and several others have developed a really great protocol for how to how to survey them during the breeding season. Um, you can use a playback, you know, which is something that we don't always encourage um, with birds, but when we're doing it for rails, it can be a really effective method for if we have a reason to be studying them. But I, for my doctoral work, I was studying them during autumn migration. And during that time of year, they don't really vocalize. Sora will occasionally call, but they don't respond in the same way that they would during the breeding season. And like Virginia rails and yellow rails just don't vocalize at all. And so we had to go with a very different method. Um, and so we went with nocturnal flushing surveys instead. Um, so we're actually out in the wetland looking for them at night. Yeah, that, I, I imagine that probably um, really messed up your your sleep schedule too. Rails, um, they don't they don't abide by our sort of our day night sort of activity they're they're really difficult to they're really difficult to find definitely so how effective was this how many rails would you find on like a given a normal night out um i mean well it depends on where you are in migration early in the season you're only seeing a handful of birds but peak migration you can see over a hundred sora in in a couple hours of surveying that's wild yeah yeah so it works quite well when there's a lot of birds around when birders find rails you know we're sort of out in the marsh and, and sometimes you can use playback or sometimes if you're out early in the morning or late at night, you can get them kind of vocalizing on their own. And there's always sort of the sense that there are, you know, not very many in a, in a given marsh because there's only, you know, maybe one or two vocalizing at any, any one point, but you, you found like hundreds of them in these marshes. Yeah. And, and, you know, so with the statistical modeling that I do, we're able to estimate something called detection probability, which is the, the probability of, of seeing something given that it's there. And even with these surveys where we're detecting hundreds of birds, our detection probability is still less than 10%. So we're only seeing like one in every 10 that's out there. So, you know, during, during peak migration, there are a lot of Sora in Missouri. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of them out there. How do you think that affects what we, the sort of research that was done before on, you know, monitoring rail populations, rail numbers, how do you think this, we're getting a really skewed response, just regular birders out there finding these rails, obviously. 
we're not we're missing a ton is what I guess what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, until we had the technology to easily go out and do playback during the breeding season, it really held back our ability to study rails, you know, during the summer, which is where most of the work's been done. Since, you know, before we had, you know, iPods with, with battery powered speakers, you had to haul around like deep cell marine batteries, which is just not very fun, um, you know, hiking through the wetland with one of those on your back. Um, so it's it, it's been it's been really limiting. So rails are a group of birds that you know some technology is really helping us kind of open up um, kind of the, the questions that we can ask and where we can ask them. Because I mean we also have tools like um, automated recording units that we can leave out for weeks at a time that will collect data in really remote areas as well, which is also very exciting. And so so what did you find out with regard to? Birders assume rails are are moving and using these wetlands uh, at a certain time in a certain way. So when did you find out versus when they're actually using these wetlands, how they're actually using these places? Yeah. So the, the previous work, so all of my work took place in Missouri. Um, and the previous work that had been done and kind of what the eBird data was suggesting was that rails weren't really arriving in the state of Missouri until the latter part of August or the early part of September. There were a handful of observations before then, but the idea was that there really weren't consistent birds around until then. Um, but my, my project, so, so today, you know, as we're recording, this is August 10th. Um, which is kind of a weird day for me because for the past five years, this has been the day that I went into the field. Um, oh, right. so this is my first year in like five years that I haven't been heading out to the rails. Sitting in an office instead of out in a marsh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little surreal. Um, but every year on the first day of surveys, we have found birds. So again, I think it gets at this idea that in, until they're in fairly high densities, your opportunity to detect them if you're not actually out in the marsh looking for them, which, you know, most birders understandably don't want to be out in the marsh right. <laughs> digging around for them. Um, you're not going to detect them until they're there in higher densities. Um, so it is really important when we're studying rails to to make sure that we're doing it in a way that we can get these first individuals when they're showing up. Because that's really important for, for management and conservation. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, I... If we're, if we're using sort of birder data to determine when these rails are, you know, the people who are managing these these wetlands, in your case, in Missouri, the Department of Conservation there, they're probably not preparing these wetlands for rails at the right time. You know, maybe they're too dry too early and the, the rails are not able to use these places. Is that is that sort of what you found? Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the big observations that came out of the first two years of my project. Um, so we ran my project for five years, and the first two were basically just observational, trying to figure out what was out there and when. And one of the big observations was, you know, these birds are arriving quite early, much earlier than we thought they were. And they're encountering these largely dry wetlands, because the wetland timing is, um, the, the flooding of the wetland timing, excuse me, um, is timed more for when blue-winged teal are arriving, and then later in the season when the other waterfowl arrive. And so in the last three years, we did an experiment that I'm still working on analyzing right now. Um, but the basic gist of it is, you know, if we flood these wetlands earlier in migration, like say at the beginning of August, do the rails respond to it? Because, you know, rails like wetlands. We, we, we know that at least at a basic level. Um, and then also, you know, what are the impacts on waterfowl later on? Um, and, and at this point, it looks like most of the time you can flood wetlands earlier in autumn migration and the rails respond in a really positive way. And it, it doesn't seem to have a negative impact on the waterfowl, which is really excellent. So what was the worry about with the waterfowl if they fled too early, that there'd be too much growth and the waterfowl would stay away? Um, well, since we're dealing with auto migration, it's actually the reverse. So we were more worried about the flooded wetlands would cause the vegetation to die back more quickly. Ah, okay. And then we would end up with just open pools of water. 
um, later in migration, which isn't as attractive to waterfowl, um, especially for, for feeding and cover. Um, I mean, they do spend some time in open water, but that's, that's not all their needs. So yeah, I'm sure the, the work that you're doing now with the Gulf of Mexico monitoring network looks at rails in addition to, you know, other things they're, they're interested in. They're such an, you know, evocative bird of that coastal salt marsh habitat. Uh, are you doing any rail work now? And if so, is it sort of related to the migration work that you'd, you'd done before? Um, so my job right now is not, not looking at any particular rail. I'm working really closely with the marsh bird group as, as part of the monitoring network. Um, but my job is more coordinating and kind of long-term conservation planning. Um, so I have some rail projects that are going on the side with some collaborators. Um, but as part of my job right now, I'm not, not doing any rail migration work. I'm hoping at some point to get some kind of wintering rail project going here on the Gulf. But cool, yeah. Yeah, well, only been in the job four months, so I'm still very much trying to make sure that I'm doing the job that I need to do before I start adding more things on top. <laughs> sure. But I, I do miss the field work. Do you, do you, um, the rails that you worked with were primarily Sora and Virginia rail and, um, and some yellow rail. And some yeah. yellow rail. Did you find that they needed slightly different habitats, that they use different? parts of the landscape or did they when they're migrating did they sort of all kind of collapse into the same sort of wetlands yeah so um sora are more of a generalist so just because you find sora in a wetland doesn't mean that you're going to find virginia rail or yellow rail but if you find virginia or yellow rail there are probably sora around so the yellow rail tend to be more of a wet prairie species so while we have on occasion found them in fairly deep water, generally speaking, they're more on the edges of the wetland um, where there's just very shallow flooding. And then Virginia rails tend to be in areas with more kind of dense vegetation. Um, they can deal with pretty deep water. That's not a problem. Um, but they, they really select for different kinds of vegetation, whereas Sora are more just looking for some cover and some flooded water, some flooded land. So yeah, Sora, more, much more generalist. There's also just way more Sora out there. Yeah, I'm so sure. So to that's... some extent, they might have to be more generalist just because there's so many of them. Yeah, no, I, and you know, in my experience, I've, I've certainly found Sora in places like really ephemeral stuff sometimes too, especially in migration. Yeah. You know, they'll just put down wherever there's, you know, a small patch of, you know, cattails and some shallow water. It's pretty, pretty remarkable. Definitely. <laughs> Their ability to find that stuff. Yeah. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change gears here for a second. In addition to rails, you're really interested in, in promoting you know, STEM opportunities. And for people who may be listening who don't know that, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics opportunities for, for women and girls. Um, what are some ways for organizations or even just you know, interested individuals to sort of get, amplify those voices, to give those people appropriate attention for the work that they're doing? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways that folks can go about it and, you know, how, how you go about it is largely going to depend on, you know, your involvement in an organization or in birding. In a lot of cases, it's, it's really, really powerful, um, especially for, for young girls that are, you know, in elementary school and middle school to see female role models um, and especially to see female role models that look like them. You know, so a lot of times we talk about, you know, women in science, um, but we also need to be thinking about, you know, representation of, of you know, women of color in science as well. Um, and so hiring people to be part of your organization or, or getting people to be part of your organization's leadership or to lead field trips or to go into classrooms um, so, that, so that these young girls can see, hey, you know, she looks like me. We have a common experience and she's really into birds or she's involved in conservation. And so then that's an option that I have as well. Um, you know, and I, and I think that can be, can be really powerful, you know, and, and that can happen a lot of different ways. 
Did you have those sort of mentors when you were kind of coming up as a young scientist? Definitely, definitely. I was um, really involved with Black Sun Bird Observatory in Ohio growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do, they do great work. <laughs> they do they do great stuff. And there were a lot of really great women um, involved with that organization. Um, Kim Kaufman is still a really huge mentor of mine. Um, you know, and there were many, many others along the way as well. And that, and that was really huge for me to be able to see that that was something that I could do with my career. I mean, there were there were many, many great men who also mentored me as well. And, and they were very helpful and powerful in, in many ways. But it can be really really good to see like, hey, we have this commonality and, and you were able to do it so I can do it too. Mm-hmm. That's great. So so coming back to Rails for a second, is there any any work that you feel still needs to be done? What are the, some of the big questions about rail migration? Oh, there are so many. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> All good research kind of asks more questions about, about your subject. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so stuff that's really directly related to what I was doing in Missouri, we have a lot of questions that remain about stopover duration. Um, so we have a little bit of evidence to suggest from my work that, that Sora are making really long stopovers in Missouri before they continue on, which is kind of unexpected and unusual. Um, you know, we're talking like greater than 45 days stopovers. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that would be something really interesting to look at. We also have a lot of questions about migratory connectivity. Um, so I looked at that a little bit in my dissertation, but we really need to better understand kind of full life cycle and a really big um, part of that that's missing for rails, especially North American rails, is where are they spending the winter? Um, you know, we know that some yellow Virginia and Soros are spending the winter down here on the Gulf Coast, but we also know that some proportion of the population is is leaving the United States and going farther south. And we don't know what proportion that is. And for most of the species, we don't really have a good feel for how far south they're going either. And whether or not a lot of them are directly crossing the Gulf of Mexico or if they're going around. So many questions. Yeah, I definitely think we tend to underestimate rails' ability to to migrate. I mean, obviously, rails show up in crazy places sometimes. Uh, There's some remarkable records of rails. Now, you know, off the top of my head, the Rufus Neck Wood Rail in, in New Mexico. There's... You know, there was a purple gallinule in Nunavut not that long ago. I mean, they're such little chunky birds with such short little wings. We don't often think that they're they're able to move these long distances, but clearly they are. They're doing some really remarkable stuff. Yeah, I mean, they're great dispersers. That's why we have all these endemic rail species on tiny islands around the world. You know, they're, they can get around when they need to. Thanks, Ariel. That was that was really fascinating. Uh, Ariel Fernier is a researcher with the Gulf of Mexico Avian Monitoring Network. She has done a ton of cool work with rails. You can find her on Twitter at Rality Rule. You should follow her. Thanks again for the chat, Ariel. Always happy to do it. Hi, I'm Greg Neese here, as always, with Ted Floyd, editor of Birding Magazine and managing editor of North American Birds, both of which are published by the American Birding Association. Hey, Ted. Hey, Greg, how you doing? Good, good. How are you? Oh, pretty well. I guess I've now uh, involved in breeding bird survey work. I haven't been. I've been sitting in the yard barbecuing and watching house sparrows. House sparrows. Well, that brings us to the topic that I think you and I are going to be discussing this afternoon. Exactly. Yep. So the uh, the house sparrow is a bird that's sort of near and dear to, to both uh, you and me, Greg. I know that's kind of kind of weird sounding for two lifelong birders, but the the house sparrow is a bird that uh, endlessly fascinates me, and I think fascinates you as as well. Just the uh, the behaviors of the bird, the the ecology of the bird, the uh, sort of management and conservation implications. But we're going to be talking actually about the physical appearance of the bird, the the way that the house sparrow looks. 
plumage to be specific. The plumage to be specific and the uh, the appearance, at least, of, of two plumages, the house sparrows, I think many of us know. And by the way, Greg, I'm talking about the, um, that the male house sparrow here has that really bright, spiffy, black, gray, brown, chestnut plumage that we see at this time of the year. We often refer to those birds as black-throated browns. Uh, and then the really dull and dingy-looking plumage that we see sort of late summer, fall, and early winter. And everything I've just told you sounds pretty straightforward and obvious, but the, the devil's in the details, and there's really a kind of weird story lurking there. Yeah, because they hang on to that weird gray kind of somber plumage. Right. So even though the house sparrow looks as different as can be, and I'm speaking very generically here, sort of fall versus spring, it's actually only one plumage that the bird has all year long. The bird has a, a so-called annual molt, uh, late summer, fall, you know, sort of early fall, maybe into mid-fall. Uh, and then as the fall and winter uh, proceed, the bird acquires a very, very different look but it's actually wearing the exact same feathers that it does in fall and, and late summer. And that is weird and paradoxical. And I have to be honest with you, it's something I did not really understand or appreciate until I'd been birding for quite a number of years. And it's, and it's, and it's quite different from some of the other common birds that, that, we, uh, that we see change plumages so dramatically, like yellow-rumped warbler, for example. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that sort of more uh, standard model. So yellow-rumped warbler is a great example. Uh, scarlet tanager, if you're in the east, western tanager in the west. So those are birds that, just like the house sparrow, look really, really different at two times of the year. And I'll just say generically, spring versus fall, or if you want summer versus winter. So the the yellow-rumped warbler, the tanagers, are birds that have quite understandably, quite intuitively, two different molts. They have a spring molt when they get bright, and then they have a fall molt when they get dull. That makes a whole lot of sense. The weird thing, though, is that the house sparrow has this one molt, only one molt per year, the fall molt, and the bird is the weirdest part of all. It starts off drab, and then it wears down into its bright spring plumage. So those really colorful male house sparrows, the black-throated browns, you know, the chestnuts and whites and grays and all the striking patterns, those are actually the house sparrows at their most worn down. The feathers that they acquired, uh, like what, you know, eight, nine, ten months ago, uh, have worn down to the really bright feathers. And those those colors are hiding underneath, basically. That's a, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. So the bird acquires this drab plumage, uh, this fresh plumage, even though it looks drab uh, during the fall. Because, and I'm being kind of anthropomorphic here, it doesn't need to look good in the fall. It just needs to survive in the fall. So it doesn't need those spectacular colors. And then, sort of hiding underneath that drabbery is the really bright, colorful plumage. And then, as winter wears on, the feathers also wear down and they expose or present or reveal the really, really bright color. So it's a really neat evolutionary trick that the house sparrow is playing. It, um, it gets to benefit from the drab-looking plumage in the fall, the bright plumage in the spring and summer, and it does it all by means of just a single annual molt, which means that it's saving a lot of energy. And there's and there's a couple of other uh, species that are familiar to us, like rusty blackbird. Snow bunting is the one that often occurs to me. Snow bunting, exactly. You know, when they when they have that that nice buffy, bright buffy plumage, 
that we see in the winter that's that's so familiar to to most of us in the northern states and in Canada. But that is just like the house sparrow that wears off and reveals the the black and white, you know, striking black and white breeding plumage uh, or breeding colors actually because it's the same plumage, um, but breeding colors of snow bunting. Precisely. So I started off the conversation with the house sparrow just because it's a bird that I have to be honest with you I have daily access to there's one right outside the maple tree that I'm looking at uh, at this very instant but uh, if we want to look for examples of native birds that do this rusty blackbird and snow bunting are fine examples of birds that uh, look very different when we see them in spring versus fall but the kind of ironic or paradoxical thing is that they're wearing the same coat of feathers and they acquire the spring plumage by the feathers wearing down yeah, and you know, molt is is something that you know, like you said, lifelong birders like you and I, I wouldn't say we take it for granted, but we're we're familiar enough with molt that we know how it can impact a bird's appearance. Um, but a lot of beginning birders don't, or even intermediate birders, or people, you know, even people have been doing it for a long time, they don't really have a good grasp of of how molt birds basically changing their feathers can can really impact a bird's appearance. So where, where can uh, where can people get some more information? I guess I would answer that question in, in two steps. The, the first is to, uh, to actually do a b- bit of reading. And, and fortunately, there are some really nice contemporary print resources for learning about molt. Maybe my, my two favorites are uh, Peter Pyle's Identification Guide. It's a uh, you know fairly technical work, but uh, also uh, easy enough to, uh, to, to, to work your way through. And he just does a really nice job of describing the molts and plumages of all the birds in North America. And then maybe a more sort of user-friendly, but also I think very authoritative book is Steve Howell's Peterson Reference Guide to Molt. That's a uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt book. It's uh, copiously illustrated. And I I personally like uh, Steve's sort of uh, didactic approach. He asks the reader questions as he go along. So I, I would I would mention uh, th- those two, the, the Peter Pyle Identification Guide, the, the Steve Howe Molt book. Uh, and then finally, if I may plug our, our own birding magazine, uh, certainly molts and plumages are a recurring theme on the pages of, of birding. I'm delighted that uh, Steve and Peter have had much to say about molt over the years. Uh, some of Donna Dittman's articles on on molt uh, have been probably some of my all-time favorites in the magazine as well. So uh, read those books, read Birding Magazine, and you probably know what's coming next, but uh, go outside and just look at real birds. Uh, it seems sounds like both you and I, Greg, right this instant have house sparrows uh, accessible to us. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I mentioned to you in a little conversation a little bit earlier uh, before we were on the podcast that my, uh, my son and I were studying the molts of mallards just yesterday. Mallards are in their complex summer molt right now. Their eclipse plumage. Their so-called eclipse plumage, and there's just all sorts of weird evolutionary and almost sort of philosophical stuff going on there. But uh, and that and that is the uh, uh, that's a bird on the uh, ABA. What's this bird identification group? That is one of the most posted birds is a summer male mallard yep. because um, unless you really you know you've got a, a sibley or one of the other field guides that really shows many different plumages of mallard they can be really confusing yeah one of the really cool things about mallards too is that because they're fairly big birds with fairly big feathers you can really see the progression from day to day of a molting mallard. So if you've got a local duck pond with a, a, 
a mallard of known identity, it's really worthwhile at this time of the year just to go look at that bird day to day to day and see how much it changes on a, on a daily basis. You know, molt is not something that happens slowly and imperceptibly like the, you know, the retreat of the glaciers or something. It's something you can see on a day to day basis. Yeah. Cool. Well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm going to go out in the yard and I think pop a beer and go look at house sparrows. I'm going to do likewise, at least the, uh, the look at the house sparrows part. And I'll be, uh, accompanied by here. It looks like a, uh, a can of natural mango essence sparkling water, but I live in Boulder, so I have a more upscale sale taste than you do. <laughs> well, it's 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 after five and it's ninety five degrees right, here. So. Fair enough. Good stuff. <laughs> Good talking with you, Ted. Likewise, thanks for having me, Greg. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are a membership organization. If you'd like to support this podcast and the many resources that the ABA provides to birders in North America and beyond, the best way to do that is to join the ABA at aba.org slash join. A special shout out to Robert Johnson of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Linnea Basden and Joshua Myers of Portland, Oregon, Debbie Kahn of San Francisco, California, and Derek Lisi, hope I got that right, of San Rafael, California, a real Western flavor this time around. A special, special shout out to my friend Patrick Bellardo of Piscataway, New Jersey, who told me that he re-upped his long-lapsed ABA membership because of the podcast. Patrick and I did the Super Bowl of Birding up in Massachusetts together a long time ago. Welcome back, Patrick. Welcome to all of you, and thanks for your support. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast is Jeffrey Gordon, who also happens to be president of the ABA. Technical production is by John Lowry, who also does marketing and sales, with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who do web development, membership, and communications. We're a small organization. We all do lots of different stuff. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. That is not to be confused with the American Bridge Association which I was a little disappointed to discover refers to the card game and not the transportation infrastructure. I had in my mind some sort of combined event with bridges and birds, maybe featuring cliff swallows, uh, but it was not to be. Those were not the cards we were dealt. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast at I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.